So, this is lesson 10 of the book of Romans. We're entering into chapter 4. And I don't know, but I think most would admit we're starting to get a little different picture of what he's telling these folks in Rome. A different picture of our status and our responsibilities in the kingdom. And if you read chapter 4, it begins this way. What shall we say then about, what shall we say Abraham our father to have found? And notice that it says what Abraham found in the matter. And so, if you start out reading chapter 4, you're kind of at a disadvantage because you don't know what matter he's speaking about. You have to back up to chapter 3 to find the matter. So we're going to do that just in case there's people that weren't here last week. Verse 27 says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? No! but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. And so what we go find as we go into chapter 4 is that Paul is continuing with his discourse on observing the law as in works of the law, or we could say the traditions of men, or observing the law through faith, which we determine that faith in Yeshua affords us, affords you a relationship with God and the leading of the Spirit of God, thereby leading you into a true and perfect Torah observance, the one that God intended originally. And we've noticed something else. I want you to notice something else. When we started this letter out in chapter 1, and part of chapter 2, he was addressing the Gentiles in Rome. The Gentiles more than likely made up about 80% of the congregation in Rome. Then in chapter 2, he speaks to the Jewish contingent of the community. Now in chapter 3 and 4, he's speaking to the whole of the community, Jew and non-Jew alike. We can say the whole of the community because they are suffering from much the same ailment. Remember, when he was speaking to the Gentiles, he was speaking to Gentiles who were caught up in works of the law. And they were judging others according to those works. Remember what he said in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And then when speaking to the Jewish contingent, he was also speaking to those who has put their confidence in observing the Torah, according to the works of men. He says this, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, you, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. Now, to both of them, he's going to say, where is the boast? Is it in works of the law? Not at all. But it's in observance of the law through faith. So now that we know, we understand who he's speaking to, let's just begin again in chapter 4. What shall we say then our father What shall we say then, Abraham our father, to have found according to the flesh? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, 
but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And notice that it says, what shall we say of Abraham our father? What Abraham our father found. And again, remember, he's speaking to Jew and non-Jew alike. And so why would he say our father Abraham in the flesh? You know, the rabbis would never do that. As an example, if you were here for the liturgy, we have a portion that we do that's called the standing prayer, the Amidah. And it's called it because it was the prayer that the priest said in the temple while they were standing before the altar of incense. Now, the standing prayer in its current form has 18 blessings, but most everyone agrees that only seven of those were really, of the 18, were said in the temple on the Sabbath day. And they are the same seven that we say. They were said in the temple. If you read the rest of them, you'll see that they probably weren't even, maybe not even in existence at that time. But listen to the one, because this is the point I want to make. It says this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, the great, mighty, and awesome God, God supreme who extends loving kindness and is master of all, who remembers the gracious deeds of our forefathers, and who has brought a redeemer with love to their children's children for his name's sake. King, helper, savior, and shield, blessed are you, shield of Abraham. Well, you know, when the rabbis discussed discussed whether a non-Jew in the congregation should even be allowed to say this portion of the prayers, and the reason being, it says, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these men, Gentiles, of course, were not of these fathers according to the flesh. Well, here, Paul doesn't have that problem. He says, what did our father Abraham find? And here's the kicker. He says, what he found according to the flesh. And so he's speaking to the, not only the Jewish continued, but he's also speaking to everyone in the congregation. And he says, our father according to the flesh. So we learn that in Paul's understanding, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, but he's also the father of all Israel. Those from the nations that are blessed with the same knowledge and faith in God that is Abraham had. Well, who are Israel, really? Think about it. Who are Israel? We all know that in our present day understanding, Israel are the Jewish people. But who really are Israel? That Paul would say to Jew and non-Jew alike, our father, Abraham, according to the flesh. Well, we only need to look and see where Israel begins. The very first occurrence of the word Israel occurs as Jacob is on the banks of the Jabbok. And he's had quite a night. No sleep, just wrestling with a man all night. And the man he's wrestling with is about to bless him. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 28. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon of Attached to the socket of the hip because Jacob's, the socket of Jacob's hip 
was touched near the tendon. You know, this is really one of the most baffling passages in Scripture. If you, if you just read it at face value, it says, Jacob, who's alone, he's alone. And yet he wrestles with a man. And then it says, I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. How can Jacob be alone and wrestle with a man? And if he's wrestling with a man, how can he say he saw God face to face? Baffling, right? Well, if you get the series on Messiah in the book of Genesis we did a few years ago, we talk about this passage and I show that one of the men that Jacob wrestled with that night was himself. He was changed that night. And the other man he wrestled with was Yeshua. Yeshua touched the socket of his hip and he walked away with a limp. His life, his walk was changed. And he says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And he gives the reason for the name change. He says, because you have overcome. So let me ask you, was Jacob born Israel? No, he became Israel by following God and overcoming. Was it through anything that he did? No. Look, he was born into the covenant with Abraham. Not only that, he was given all the promises of God that were given to Abraham back in chapter 28 as he left home. But he was given the title or the name Israel because he struggled with God and with men and overcame. And what we learn from this is Israel is not born, but Israel are those who overcome this life whose lives are changed through struggling with themselves and with Yeshua, and they end up changed. They walk differently through life. If you see Jacob, you see, if Jacob had won the match that night, he would not have been called Israel. And he would have actually lost the match. But he didn't win the match. He lost that wrestling match that night, and he was changed. He walked away with a limp. So by losing the match, he actually won. If you wrestle with Messiah and you win, in other words, your will overpowers his will in your life, then you lose. If Messiah changes you and he touches you, if his will, if you lose your will and his will overpowers your will in your life, then you win. If Messiah changes you, if he touches you, and your walk through life changes, then you overcome and you become Israel. That's why Paul will say this to the Ephesians. And I've read most of this, I'm going to read most of this out of Young's Literal. And then one verse out of something else, which I'll tell, say later. But it says, reads this way. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you were once the nations in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that you were once apart from Messiah, having been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And now in Messiah, remember that, in Messiah Yeshua, you being once afar off became nigh in the blood of Messiah, For he is our peace who did make both one and the middle wall of the enclosure did break down. By his flesh he made the hostility of the commandments in ordinances of the law cease to apply. 
that the two might be created in himself, one new man making peace, and might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross, having slain the enmity in it. And having come, he did proclaim the good news, peace to you, the far off and the nigh, because through him we have access. We both in one spirit unto the Father. Like I say, that was the Young's literal, except where it says, by his flesh he made the hostility of the commandments and the ordinances of the law cease to apply. And that came from Gruber's translation. So when Paul says, you were once of the nations, Gentiles at birth, called the uncircumcision by those who called the, themselves the circumcision, or we could say the Jewish people, because remember at this time, circumcision and Jewish people are synonyms. He says, at that time you were alienated from Israel, a foreigner. But now, because of Messiah Yeshua, you've been brought near. And then he says, we both have access, one spirit unto the Father. We've all been grafted into Israel, and it happens the same way. In chapter 11, he will say, you have been grafted in, and those branches and natural branches broken off, and they can be regrafted in, right? How was Jacob, and why was Jacob named Israel? You see, it's the same process. We both go through the same process. Then he says this, For he himself is our peace, who hath made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By his flesh he made the hostility of the commandments and ordinances of the law cease to apply. What did he make cease to apply? What are the ordinances of the law? Well, you have to look up the word for ordinance. And it is the word dogma. Decree, public decrees of the Roman Senate, of rulers. Is the Torah dogma? May it never be so. And it's never called dogma in Scripture. Paul and Luke alike only use the word dogma in reference to the decrees and the teachings of men. So what dogma did Yeshua abolish in the flesh? Well, the same dogma we've been talking about for the last few weeks. The works of the law given by men. That's dogma. And how did he do that? Well, he just told us. He says, because through him we have access, we both, in one spirit unto the Father. We no longer need dogma. We no longer need the edicts of men. We no longer need the works of Torah according to men. Whatever you want to call it. Because we now have access to the Father through Yeshua. We've been grafted into Israel. And Abraham is our father. And that's why Paul calls him our father according to the flesh. Because our grafting in is so complete that he is. Because we now live our lives in the flesh as Abraham lived his life in the flesh. We believe God. We obey God. And not through some written code of men but the same way Abraham did through listening to the voice of God. Amen? You know, that's what really makes, that's really the kicker for me and what makes all this nonsense, and I call it nonsense, 
of trying to be one of the lost tribes or trying to be Jewish, find out if you're Jewish. It's a waste of time. Let me tell you something. There are no special people in the world. There is one special Messiah. And being in Messiah, it doesn't get any better than being in him. You notice what I said above, and I said, pay attention. I said, and now in Messiah. You know, Paul coined that phrase, in Messiah, to describe our status. We did a series uh, on in Messiah a few years ago, and what an eye-opener it was as to our place in the kingdom of heaven and our responsibility. Basically, this is what we found. God declared Yeshua on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said this of Yeshua. This is my son and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, you see, if you're in Messiah, the father looks at Yeshua and says, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. And then he sees you in Messiah. And he says again, this is my son whom, with whom I am well pleased. And then he looks again, he sees me and he says, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Now let me ask you, how good is that? Friends, I don't care if you're Jacob himself. It doesn't get any better than God saying, this is my son and with him I am well pleased. It just doesn't get any better than that. And yet we have people wasting their money on DNA tests and ethnic background checks, trying to find out if they're this or that in the flesh. Friends, do yourself a favor. Spend your money. Don't spend your money on such nonsense. Invest your money in the kingdom of heaven, not on matters of no importance, like what you are in the flesh. Because if you're in Messiah, it doesn't get any better, nor does the flesh matter any longer. Jew and non-Jew are in Messiah, and we come to being in Messiah in the same way and like I said it doesn't get any better than that what more do you want okay now that we know who he's speaking to he says this and I'll read it again what shall we say Abraham our father to have found according to the flesh where it says to have found What was found was what we spoke of the last two weeks. Not even Abraham could boast before God. He cannot stand before God and say, you have have to find me justified because I did this or that. He can't, and guess what? Nobody else can either. And so he continues. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He says if Abraham was justified by works, well, where where would he get such an idea that Abraham could have ever been justified by works? Because just a little bit of study of the book of Bereshit in Genesis and you understand that he wasn't justified by works, but by the grace of God. We saw that. God called him. He did not call him because of his great works, because none none of his works are mentioned well after his calling. Well, again, the problem here is, and the reason he puts it that way, is, is that in his day, 
there were many who thought the offering of Isaac mer- or merited Abraham right standing. And we can see this in a Midrash on Leviticus. It says, So when the children of Isaac give way to transgression and evil deeds, do thou recollect for them the binding of their father Isaac and the rise from the throne of judgment and betake the throne of mercy. And being filled with compassion for them, have mercy on them and change them from change for them the attribute of justice unto the attribute of mercy. Now we know this idea doesn't even hold water. And while Abraham displayed great faith in this one act of binding Isaac, it was not how he was declared righteous. Now to prove the point, Paul is going to quote Torah. He's going to quote Genesis 15. Isn't it amazing that we have this doctrine in the church that the Torah is made obsolete and yet Paul quotes it over and over and over to establish the gospel? He quotes Genesis 15 to tell us, and rightly so, that Abraham's righteousness was credited to him because he believed. Or we could say because he trusted God. Not his works, but because he trusted God, it was credited to him. The fact that he trusted God means when God looks at Abraham, he sees that he's righteous because he trusts him. When God looks at Abraham's life, he sees over here in the debt column this and that. But over in the plus column, he sees that he's righteous because he believed. He's a man of faith in God. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should because it's exactly what we spoke of last week and the week before. Notice that Paul uses a financial term. He says credited to him. And remember that I said Yeshua paid our ransom. Another financial term. You see, when God looks at you in the debt column, he doesn't see just this and that. But he sees looking in my debt column, huge this and huge that. Right? In fact, he sees in the debt column a debt so great that he says, bankrupt! (laughs) You're bankrupt! Right? Then he looks over in the plus column, he sees the righteousness that was credited to me or to us through faith in Messiah Yeshua, and he says, debt paid! We have this enormous credit that outweighs debt, any debt. So then Paul says this in verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. You see, if you were able, if you were able to be saved by works, then one day, You'd be able to stand before the judge of all the earth, before God, and say, I earned the world to come, so pay me. And you'd have a boast. I earned the world to come. You owe me. You get wages. They're not a gift. They're earned. Now let me ask, who can do that? Who can stand before the creator who made him and say, you owe me? Well, you know that we can't. We should know that any credit goes to the one who made us. In fact, to the one who remade us. 
But notice what he says next. To the man who does not work but trusts God. Isn't that an amazing statement? Amazing, right? Trust requires no work. In other words, trust itself is not a work, but it too is a gift from God. You know, I met some believers that think, hey, they've done some great thing. Just because they believed in Yeshua, there's some who think they're, they're better or smarter than everyone else in the world because they came and they trust God and they believed God. So in effect, what do they do? Huh? What do they do? In effect, they have made their trust a work and a boast. And Paul just told, you, told us that trust is not a work. You cannot stand before God one day and say, I worked and you owe me. Neither had you better stand before him and say, I believed and you owe me. Your believing does not make God indebted to you because even your believing is a gift of God so no man can boast. Again, let's let's look at this in financial terms since we've been looking at this in financial terms. Your trust in God and the redemption he secured requires that you say to God, Lord, I'm bankrupt. I have all this crushing debt. Lord, help me for I can't help myself. I need you to help me for I can do nothing on my own. And so because you believe that it's only he that can help you, all of a sudden you have this enormous plus. A positive balance. The crushing debt has been paid. Not only that, all of a sudden you have a financial advisor. And now you're accumulating wealth through the good deeds that God prepared in advance for you to do. You see, he doesn't stop with a huge credit to your account. He gives you guidance so that you don't incur any more debt. And not only that, you build wealth in the kingdom through good deeds that he's prepared in advance for you to do. I thought, how can we liken this? What can we liken this to? And we can liken it to a son who inherits a vast fortune. Oftentimes, they squander that vast fortune and their lives in the end become a mess. And it was all because of this wealth that was given them. You know, believers often make the same mistake. I have this vast fortune given to me by God, this salvation given to me by God. It's free. I have to do nothing but I can now go through life as I please. And they get to the end of their lives and they have this vast sum to pay, their debt. And it's paid. But what they find out is they don't have anything in their retirement account either. And so when they get to the kingdom, they're a little poor. They're broke. Like the son who squandered his wealth. Well, that's not what God does for us. Because he knows us so well what God does. And again, we'll liken it to a wealthy father. That instead of giving his vast fortune to his son, says to his son, son, come learn the family business. I'm going to start you out on the loading dock. And then I'm going to move you there and move you there to the assembly line and on and on. Until the son feels he has ownership of the business. And then in the end, he has substance that will carry him all the days of his life. He doesn't squander his wealth, but he builds more wealth. Amen? 
Well, God does the same thing. He gives us the amount necessary to pay the debt. And then he says, come work in Israel's family business. And the family business is distributing God's wealth to others. And he keeps you so busy that you no longer have time to do the things that you did to incur the debt. As Paul says in Ephesians, and we're going to get awful tired of looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 10. But it says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, but it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We could say God, by, it is by God's grace that your debt is paid through Messiah Yeshua. And the reason it's paid is that so that you can go out and do good works that God has prepared for you to do. And then when you reach the kingdom, you won't be broke. But as Yeshua said to the rich young man, you will have treasure in heaven. You see, we in the church, we've got the first part of this right. But we forget the other half of the equation. We get the salvation as a free gift, but we forget the, our responsibility is to do good works, and good works are Torah. Can you name a good work that isn't found in Torah? There are none. Many do get it, but some do. You know, I always say that if, if many in the church knew how much Torah they actually kept, they'd be appalled. They'd say, oh, I've been under the law. You know, many, many don't keep the Sabbath, granted. Many don't keep the dietary commands, granted. But when it comes to loving their neighbor, they are Torah observant. Now, how do, does Paul prove all of this? Well, again, he goes to the authority, the only authority that there is, the Word of God. The same Old Testament that many tell us are, we don't need to pay attention to. He says this, in verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. He quotes David in Psalm 32, and I'm going to read a bigger portion of it in a minute. And I hope when you see a text quoted in Scripture, you'll do the same thing. You'll take the time to go read the rest of the passage because oftentimes in the first century, remember in the first century, there was no Psalm 22, no Psalm 32, no Psalm 45. There was no verse 2, 3, 4, or 5. There were no chapters or verses. And so when the speaker wanted to draw your attention to a passage of Scripture, he quoted part of it. He may not quote it all. He just wants to draw your attention to it. So you need to read the whole passage. So let's read. But first, before we do, he says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. And the word that's used there for blessed is one that we should be familiar with. It's ashray. And remember, we're familiar with it because when we studied Matthew, we found it's the same word that Yeshua uses when he says, Blessed are. The blessed are is that he begins the Sermon on the Mount with. And it means joyful, happy, content, secure, confident. Yeshua uses it to speak of those of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, if we go to the Psalm 32, David will say this next. He will say, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Or day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged to you my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my guilt, the guilt of my sin. You see, David in this psalm, he realizes that man is bankrupt and wasting away, groaning under the consequences of his sin. And he, after suffering under this heavy load, says he cried out to God and was given the gift of having his guilt forgiven, his debt paid. Now, if we skip down to verse 8, I want you to notice the voice here changes. And we find David speaking almost as in another voice. And it is, it's through the voice of his son, Yeshua. Remember, David often speaks in the voice of his son, Yeshua. And a great example of that is read Psalm 22. Okay, so let's uh, read what it says here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit and the bridle, or they do not, will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Yeshua just does not forgive your sin. He then leads you, he will instruct you, he will teach you, and he will watch over you. So don't be stubborn like the horse and the mule. Don't be stubborn. Lose the wrestling match with Yeshua. Let his will take over your life and let it be filled with good works of Torah. Those which are done through the leading of the Spirit. Trust him. Because God's unfailing love surrounds those who put their trust in him. Amen. Bring the worship team forward.